And good evening, everyone. Welcome back to Friday Night with Friends. We are so excited to have you with us, and we are so excited to have our friend with us. We have none other than the General Director of Global Missions for the United Pentecostal Church International, Brother Bruce Howe. And what a distinct honor, Brother Howe, to have you with us. Thank you for making time to be with us, my friend. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Well, as you know, Brother Howell, this is a missions-minded church, and so let me take a moment, if you'll allow me, to brag on the people a little bit. This COVID-19 obviously has had massive impact on our ability to meet together in person, but I can report to you, Newark, that as of the end of April, you have, through this COVID-19, you have met all of our previous obligations to global missions. We are in the black straight up, you have continued to give. And so none other than in front of Brother Howell, I congratulate you and I thank you for your faithfulness. Um, it's a distinct honor to have Brother Howell with us. And uh, if you do not know about missions in Newark UPC, I, Desi, I don't, I, don't, I don't know where they've been if they don't know about missions. They're not members of our church. <laughs> Which, by the way, if you are a guest with us, welcome. We're glad that you've joined us. And you can find out about us and more things about us at NewarkUPC.info. You can join a small group there. It's never been easier. They're all virtual. It's easy to be involved and be a part. Our daily broadcast, Tuesday through Sunday. And, uh, of course, on Wednesday nights, we've got an hour-long broadcast with Bible study. On Friday nights, we have this Friday Night with Friends, which is an hour-long broadcast. And uh, all the other nights are about 30 minutes. And uh, Monday's our Sabbath. So there's our schedule. You can get in touch with us there. You can partner with us in giving. You can uh, submit prayer requests, all of that. Don't forget, newarkupc.info. But I want to get out of the way. And here's what I've asked Brother Howell to talk about. We're not going to have him talk about missions in the sense of all that's happening in all the countries around the world. And trust me, he can. I have the honor and the privilege to sit in meetings. And when Brother Howell hits the room, everybody knows he's hit the room. He is a tornado of energy, and he gets to talking fast, and it's all about the kingdom. But tonight, I've asked him to take us back, take us all the way back to a little boy and a little girl. Now, I want to say this delicately and sensitively. Brother Howell is in a season of life that very is in keeping with what we've been talking about, first with Dr. Cindy Miller, and then also with Reverend Greg Albritton. His wife passed away his partner of many, many years. And Brother Howe, I don't want to choke you up. I don't want to get you emotional. But if you do, it's all right. There's no big deal. But I want him to tell us his story. I want him to tell us her story and then their story, because they ultimately ended up being dynamic missionaries in a country of El Salvador where massive revival occurred. And I personally, Brother Howe, have a lady that I love. I'm going to share this video out to her. Her name is Hilda. And Hilda was uh, an exchange student in a master's program at the University of Delaware when I was a boy. And she, and of course, went back to El Salvador and her daughter, Rebecca. We love them dearly. And so uh, El Salvador holds a special place for us because of that connect. But I want to know the backstory. I want to know how a kid from, I think, Illinois ends up being a missionary to El Salvador and ultimately leading the missions effort of one of the most missions-minded churches in all of the world, the United Pentecostal Church International. So Desi and I are going to basically go away. We're going to spotlight you, and we want you to take it away and kind of tell us anything and everything. Tell us the stuff that's not on the promo videos. Tell us the backstory. Okay, well, Brother Beardsley, thank you so much. And uh, I do want to thank you so very much for your faithful giving. In fact, on Tuesday evening of this week, I was in the executive board meeting and I just received our April financials. And I'm glad to say that our PIM giving is up $100,000. Uh, we're not down at all. And I give God praise for that. But I also give thanks to you because I know it's churches like you and your people, those of you that are listening to me, that have made this possible. By the way, I'm in my office here at my house, and my cuckoo clocks, I have two of them here. These are cuckoo clocks from my wife's uncle from the Second World War, were bought in Germany. And if you hear them uh, talking to you, that's what's going on. And another thing that you will find very interesting, right behind me, you'll see the sword on the bookcase. 
that bookcase right there is what I collect. You can't see all of it. Uh, let me just adjust it here a little. You can see all down the whole bookshelf. That is nearly 200 Bibles that I have collected in different languages from around the world. Uh, that's what I collect when I go. They're not just Bibles that I buy from anywhere. They're places that I have visited. And I thank God that I've been able to visit about 180 countries. My wife visited 140 countries. And uh, I thank the Lord for the opportunity just to serve him. Now, my story can be very long. It's, I'll detail it. I'll try to tell some of the things that probably I don't get up and talk in the pulpit about, about my life. But uh, my wife and I, we were married 46 years. She passed away on the 24th, just a few days ago. It was 10 months ago. And uh, I thank God for her. Thank God for our lives. But to begin with, let me begin with my life. I am originally from Southern Illinois, a little town called Heron, Illinois. And this is an area that is coal mining country. Um, now, when you think of Illinois, you might think of Chicago, but that's not what Southern Illinois is like. Southern Illinois, really, where I come from, is really more Southern than it is Northern. Uh, the people are uh, coal miners. My parents and my grandparents, all of our uh, my grandparents migrated and their parents migrated into that area to work in the coal mines. They were, um, all of my parents, my grandparents, both of my grandfathers were coal miners. My dad was a coal miner. All my uncles were coal miner. My brother was until they closed down the mines in Southern Illinois. Now, I was born into a family. My mother was not a Christian. In fact, my mother, she went to Chicago when she was 14 years of age. She went there as a maid and worked in a Jewish home when she was there. In fact, she told me quite a bit about how they used to cook on the different. Now the family she lived for would do some meats that probably they shouldn't have done, but they had separate dishes and mom told me about all of that. But my mother, uh, her first husband, she was married to her first husband. Uh, when uh, they got married, the second world war started. He went to the war. Uh, my sister, my half sister, she was uh, born, she was six months old when her dad went to Europe. He was killed in the, uh, in the uh, Second World War in France. And uh, as a result of that, my mother, when she married him, he was a man that was probably would have been a prominent citizen in the town where I was born. But as a result of him passing away, she felt like that her life was affected. Uh, she, um, uh, come, what my mother told me that when she remarried after after her first husband uh, was killed, she was uh, remarried and her first father-in-law had said that she would not, he would not bring the body back to the States. But after she remarried, she was pregnant with my brother when the father-in-law, her first father-in-law decided to bring the body of her first husband back. So she was embarrassed to have to go to his funeral pregnant with my brother. She was remarried. There wasn't anything wrong with that, but the timing was just ill time. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because my mother kind of began at that point to feel like that life had dealt her a bad blow, that she had been mistreated, that things were not the way that they could have been. She married my father, who was a coal miner. He could not read or write. I know that she met him in a bar. They were not Christians, of course. And um, when they met, uh, life was probably not too easy. My father was, now these are details that I don't tell everybody. My father was a gambler. He would, after he would be paid on Friday, he would go to gamble and would gamble his whole check away. Him and my mother did not get along because of that. And what happened is my mom and my dad divorced. And when they divorced, uh, mother was not aware of it but mother was expecting me at that time. Later on, after they were divorced, she found out she was expecting me. And back in those days, people did not have children without being married. And so they remarried in order to give me uh, a legitimate birth. And uh, then they divorced when I was three years of age. I still remember that because as I was growing up, I grew up in a home that, um, you know, it wasn't the best. My mother her first husband was killed in the Second World War. Her and my dad were married twice. 
and then they uh, divorced again when I was three years of age. At that point, uh, my mother then did for a little while live with my stepfather before she married him. And as I said, back in those days, I'm 66. And back in those days, there were not a lot of people that just lived together. It's kind of not the way it is today. A lot of people just decide to live together. But back in those days, people didn't do it. And I remember how embarrassed I was. And I wasn't a Christian, but I remember how embarrassed I was because my mother was living with a man she wasn't married to. And of course, in those days, I'm sure the neighbors talked about it and so forth. But anyway, I began to grow. And I remember that when I was probably five or six around that age, mother, uh, she sent us to the nearest church. And the nearest church to our house, it was a half block away, and it was the first Pentecostal church. And uh, I remember when I went to church there. Now, back in those days, they didn't have bus ministry. That just people picked you up in the cars. And there were people that would come to my house and they would give me a ride when the weather was bad and so forth to church, to Sunday school. But I was probably what you would consider a bus kid. I mean, my family wasn't the best family. My stepfather was an alcoholic. My mother smoked two packs of cigarettes. And I hate to say this, I love my mom very much. She's been deceased for quite a while. But my mother could cuss like a sailor. Excuse that terminology. But it was just kind of a rough family that I came from. Now, my mother loved me. She was a good person. I remember probably one of the hardest spankings I ever received was when she caught me trying to smoke cigarettes out back behind the shed. And I never could understand that because she smoked two packs a day. And I thought, why is she spanking me? You know what I mean? Here she is smoking two packs a day. But I guess she knew how bad it was. And then my mother married my stepfather eventually. They divorced. She married him another time. So mom was married five times, but only to three men. She married two of them twice. I don't understand all that. But anyway, when I was a little kid, she sent us to the First Pentecostal Church. I remember going there. And back in those days, when it was cold in the wintertime, we would, I would go to Sunday school and she made me wear these wool pants. They were the itchy kind of wool pants. And I remember I would put those on and I would put my pajamas underneath them so they wouldn't itch my legs. And I'd go to Sunday school and pull my pant legs up and show the other little kids that I had my pajamas on. And, and I'm sure the teacher had to pull my ear. But there's one thing that I never forgot about that. And that was when I was, it was in the summertime, the church was having a picnic and I wasn't going to go. But I'll never forget a teacher by the name of Sister Patsy that came to my house and visited me and wanted me to go to the picnic. It made an indelible impression upon my life that somebody would care for me that much that they would come to visit me. And of course, my home was not, I mean, it was a clean home and so forth, but we were poor, very poor. But though when I went to that church, there were things that were put inside of me that I didn't realize till later. I quit going to that church as I got a little older. You know, then as I got into junior high school, I began to go to parties. I began to dance. I love to dance. I love music. And uh, I remember as I was growing up, I remember that uh, there was a time there were some girls that I knew in school. I was in eighth grade and there were a couple of girls that invited me to go to uh, church. Well, I wasn't going because of the church. I went because I wanted to go with the pretty girls. And so I'll never forget going to church that night. And that night, I don't know if any of you know a man by the name of Marvin Walker, who used to be very involved in Bible quizzing. Marvin was the choir director and was in the church. He was the youth leader in the church there. Well, the choir sang that night. A preacher by the name of Ed Lucas was preaching. I went to the altar. I was filled with the Holy Ghost that night, was baptized. I was 13, and that changed my life completely. And uh, so that was my life after when I got into the church. Now, let me stop here right now and talk about another young lady, and her name was Diane James. She was from Jackson, Mississippi. Diane James came from a family where her father and mother uh her mother was in the church. I think her dad may have gotten into the church, but he backslid. And uh, this was my wife, Diane. Diane was raised in the South. She was raised in the church in First Pentecostal Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 
she was there when Brother Gamlin was the pastor. And then when Brother T.L. Kraft came, he began to pastor that church. My mother-in-law, her mom, her parents were pioneer Pentecostal people from the southern part of Mississippi. They were from an area around Columbia, Mississippi, but really the place they live was a place called Pineburg. It's a place out in the middle of the country. Now they were converted and they were Baptists, they were converted. And of course their families disowned them. But uh, that's the family that my mother-in-law came from and they were Pentecostal people. They were pioneer Pentecostals. They were not United Pentecostal Church, but they were in the Assemblies of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, they were very good friends of Brother Wilson, who later, uh, the grandfather and then the son, became the superintendent of the Assemblies of the Lord Jesus Christ. So my wife was raised in that atmosphere. Now, her dad was not a good man. Uh, in fact, he uh, remarried another woman while he was still married to my mother-in-law. Now, these are things that I have never told publicly, but that's what happened. And of course, I don't know everything, but apparently there were some things that went on and my wife was very, very resentful to him. She became a great support for my mother-in-law. And she was raised in the church in Jackson. She was involved in the church. Brother and Sister Kraft were her pastors. Her background was completely different than mine. I came from a background of worldly people who were just pure rank sinners. She came from a family where her dad wasn't serving God, but her mother was. Her mother was one of the main families. She had two other sisters, three other sisters in that church. And they were some of the main members of the church at the First Pentecostal Church in Jackson. So that was her upbringing. She was brought up in the church with a great background, with a great pastor, Brother Gamble, when she was a little child, and then Brother Kraft as she was a young person. And um, she, uh, she was there in the church. Well, let me go back to my testimony. Then when I received the Holy Ghost, I became very involved in the church. Many times I would have to walk to church to get there. It was about a mile to the church in the wintertime. I would walk. I would be the first one there and the last one to leave. And my mother could never understand why I wanted to do that. But I just simply found something. Leroy Sherry, who they were later missionaries in Australia, then Vanuatu. In fact, they're retired. Sister Sherry passed away just a few months ago. Brother Sherry is still alive and he is retired in Texas. They baptized me. And I remember when I got in the church back in those days, Bible quizzing started. It was the whole book of Genesis. And that year I was a member of the quiz team. We won second place in the state of Illinois. And uh, I probably know more as far as about the book of Genesis than any other book because of Bible quizzing. Then I was in high school. I sang. But then I remember I used to go to competition and I would sing. My desire before I got in the church was to be an opera singer. But I remember in, in my senior year, I went to voice competition. I remember singing the song, Oh, Jerusalem. And there was a professor from Southern Illinois University that was my judge. He heard me sing and he offered a scholarship to me to, for voice in Southern Illinois University. Well, I felt like God had called me to preach and I had already begun to investigate different Bible colleges, and I had already decided that I wanted to Gateway College. Of, I wanted to go to Gateway College of Evangelism. I remember my student counselor or my counselor calling me in, and uh, she said, "You know, you've got an offer. <coughs> excuse me, of a scholarship for Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois. That was right in 15 miles from where I was, where I live. And uh, I told her, I said, I'm sorry." I appreciate that, but I'm not going to accept it. I'm going to go to Bible college. And I did. I went to Bible college. I left home when I was 17 years of age. Uh, Mom did, was not against me doing that. But I remember when I was a child, when I first got in the church at 13, mom would punish me by not allowing me to go to church because she thought that I was going to church because of the good looking girls. Well, I have to be honest with you. That wasn't the reason. I promise that wasn't the reason, but it was a good side benefit. And uh, so uh, that's what happened. I went to Bible school in my first year. Uh, I, I had to work. Uh, I studied. I was trying to do a double major in theology and music. And then after that, I changed and went completely theology. Uh, the second year, there were five students that came from Jackson, Mississippi to Bible college. And one of them was Diane James. And she came. 
She was a spunky little girl. She was a Southerner. And I remember thinking, there is no way she'll ever have anything to do with me because I was a Yankee. She was a Southerner. And I didn't think she would have anything to do with me. Sister Tinney had a niece there by the name of Donna Barron. Well, Donna knew that Diane was interested in me and put a bug in our ear. And I remember that I asked Diane to go out with me. She at home, she had graduated from high school. And you got to remember back in those days is when the race issue was very bad. And especially in Jackson, Mississippi, it was really bad. My wife said that in her last years of high school, she spent more time out of high school because of the riots than she did in. But uh, she had a background completely different, even though she, her mother was a legal secretary. They didn't have a lot of money, but they did have help in the house. And she used to tell me uh, about how that uh, Rosa, the, the lady that worked in the house, who was an Afro-American, she would take her and they had to ride in the back of the bus when they went downtown and everything. And, and she uh, took care of her and and uh, my wife had an understanding of all that that I just didn't understand. And uh, so when I met her, I didn't think she'd have anything to do with me, but she did. So I asked her to go out with me. That was right before General Conference. The corral went to Miami. General Conference was in Miami. I remember she didn't get to go. I went to General Conference. Every night we would sing. We sang for the Global Mission Service, or foreign missions in those days. And I remember that I would go to my room and I would be sad because I wanted to see her. Well, needless to say, three months later, I asked her to marry me. And I went and met her mother, was introduced to the Southern culture, and uh, just fell in love with it. My wife had gone to one year of junior college in Jackson before she came to Gateway. We um, dated for nine months and were married between my second and third year of Bible college. She didn't go to school. She worked to put me through school. And so I graduated from Gateway College of Evangelism and married Diane James. Um, opposites, we came from completely different backgrounds. I'll never forget, she was a tremendous cook. In fact, I just preached a message right before this for the Spanish National Conference, recorded it. And I was talking about, the, my message is about, I mentioned food. My wife was a tremendous hostess. And I remember her cooking. And one of her first meals she cooked was fried chicken. And when I got home, I said, where are the mashed potatoes? Well, they don't eat mashed potatoes in Mississippi. They ate rice. And I just couldn't imagine that. And anyway, I said one of the things I shouldn't have said to her. I said, well, my mom doesn't do that. Well, believe you me, I learned real fast not to do that. But anyway, we got married. I graduated. I was going to go to Mississippi uh, there to take the fourth year of Bible college at Pentecostal Bible Institute, but I didn't do that because it was a repeat of what I'd gotten at Gateway. Then to make, I know I'm, I'm, I've got to get into this. I got to get going. I'm taking a little too much time, but we- You're uh, doing fine, Brother Howe. You're doing fine. Okay. Yes. So You're anyway, we went there and when we got to Jackson, uh, Brother Kraft, the church at that point was about 1,500 people. He bought another building completely, and I began to pastor that group. And so I was working in the church there. I worked at a bank. Diane worked in an insurance company. But one of the things that I had decided, I remember we went and I preached a revival in Parsons, Tennessee. And I remember on our way back, we began to talk about that we wanted to start our family. One of the things I decided is I didn't want my wife to work. My mother always had to work. She got up at 10 to 5 in the morning, had to come home and cook and, and wash the clothes and do everything. I wanted my children to have a mother that was at home. And so we promised each other that as soon as we had a child, she would not work a secular job. And I thank God that when she found out she was expecting our first child, she did not ever have to work after that when Jared, our son, was born. By the way, he's 45 years of age right now. But anyway, we, we began to work in the church. We pastored the annex. Uh, Brother Kraft bought Jackson College of Ministries. They asked me to go on staff there. I was dean of Christian education for three years. And in the middle of that, I really did not have in mind that I was going to go to the mission field. But uh, the man that worked there, his name was Don Fisher. He was very missions minded, had been at headquarters. And he 
put into us missions. And of course, Brother Kraft was missions minded. Uh, even though Brother Kraft was not my pastor that baptized me, he became my pastor. He began to disciple me. There were things that happened. Brother Kraft was very strict. I'll never forget, I used to direct service. One time I got up and that's back when we used to sing out of the song book. And I got up and forgot the number of the song and was looking for it. And Brother Kraft came up and took the service away from me. There was probably 1,500 people sitting there. I felt like it was very embarrassing to me. It was one of the best lessons I ever learned. And that was to be prepared when you get in the pulpit. And I learned from Brother Kraft. I learned my passion from Brother Kraft. Anyway, I taught at JCM. We took a mission trip to Central America, visited Costa Rica, Guatemala, and El Salvador. In all three of those countries, the other two countries, the missionaries in Guatemala and the missionary in Costa Rica, both asked me to come there. They wanted me to come. Brother Drost was in El Salvador, didn't say a word about it. That's where God called me. And so we decided to apply my wife was always, you know, people used to ask her, were you called to the mission field? She said, I married my husband. And I said, I would go wherever he went. And it wasn't, I never had to drag her. She always went wherever we went. She was very willing. She was always behind me. She was the greatest thing outside of God that ever happened to me. And so anyway, we met the board in 1978. I'm the general director of Global Missions. The first time I met the board, I was turned down. It devastated me. I Because everybody told me, oh, there's no problem. You're going to get appointed. Well, I wasn't appointed. But I was persistent. I met the board again in 1979 and was appointed to go to El Salvador. But even before that, I'll never forget there was an ice storm in Jackson. Brother Lehman, who was regional director for Central America, called me in all of Latin America. He said, would you go to Panama? And I said, I'm sorry, Brother Lehman. I feel like that God has called me to go to El Salvador. And that's where I've got to go. Even after that, when the Civil War was going on, we got there. They tried to get me to go to another country. But I went to El Salvador, went to Costa Rica for 10 months where we learned the Spanish language. We went to El Salvador. I'll never forget the times of hearing the bombs and the bullets when we went to the country, but I knew God had called me there. And I said, God, if you've called me here, you're going to have to take away the fear. My son was a year and a half. I had a daughter. I'm sorry. My son was three years old. My daughter was a year and a half. And when we went to El Salvador, seeing dead bodies laying on the road, seeing and hearing the bombs go off, hearing the machine guns go off. I had never lived in that before. The only gunfire I had heard was from Southern Illinois and that was killing squirrels and rabbits because that's what we shot to eat. But you know what? That's what God did for a young man that came from a family that was a very poor family. My mother only went to third grade. I could never get my mother to get on an airplane to come and see me. The only place she would ever let me take her out to eat the ritziest place she'd let me take her was Long John Silver's. She wouldn't let me take her to a steakhouse. She said it was a waste of money because that's where I was raised. And to think what God has done in my life. You know, um, uh, Brother brother Beardsley, I, I want to talk a little more, but it's about 6.30. What, what, can I go on? You can. Talk for a little bit more. You, we, okay. we, will, we will grant you a lot of latitude, my friend. So okay. you, you keep okay. sharing because you're doing a great job. Anyway, when I got to El Salvador, uh, you know, and, and let me say, when I was in Bible college, my wife and I, I didn't have a pedigree. You know, I would look at people like Anthony Mangan and Ron Beckton and, and other guys that were big names. And I thought, there's no way I can do anything because I didn't have a pedigree. But you know what? Let me tell you, when God calls you, God will give you the ability to do what he's called you to do. And uh, I remember that I didn't think I could do anything, but Brother Kraft helped me. He helped me. He gave me a passion for the lost. And I remember when we went to El Salvador, when we began to have the crusades, El Salvador was the country where crusades began. The, the big crusades. And I remember there was the one year when we were there that Billy Cole came. And that was the year that we had over, we had 3,034 people filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost in one, in, in three nights. And Brother Cole, he, he couldn't sleep that night. He woke me up. We began to see miracles. We began to see churches started. We began, when I, and when I was a missionary there, I would drive down the roads and I would say, God, we've got to have churches here. But two weeks after I arrived, 
arrived in El Salvador. I went there to do the Bible school. Brother Dross, I went there to help him. But there was a need in Guatemala. There was a need of a missionary. They called me trying to get me to go to Guatemala. And I said, I'm sorry. I just feel like it's God that has called me to El Salvador and I've got to stay here. So Brother Dross left and went to Guatemala and I remained in El Salvador where I lived for 20 years. I'm honored to be director of global missions. I'm in my 19th year and I thank the Lord for that. I was 20 years in El Salvador. The greatest years of my life was when we were in El Salvador. And you know, our lives were different, my wife and I. For example, in the raising of our children, my kids being raised in the church, there were things that they went through that I didn't understand, but my wife did understand because she was raised in the church. There were times that my children went through times that I didn't understand. But I do thank God. Everything's not perfect in my family. But I thank God that all three of my children, I have a son, Jared, who's 45. I have a daughter, Leah, who is 42. I have a daughter, Amy, who is 36, just turned 36 a couple of days ago. All three of them are in the ministry. My son pastors in Columbus, Ohio. My daughter pastor, my eldest daughter, they pastor in Indianapolis. And my baby daughter is in Latvia as a missionary. And uh, God has been so good to me. Uh, a few months ago, uh, just about, uh, it was not even two years ago, uh, my wife, we found out she had ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, and uh, she passed away after 10 months of having the disease. And I'm going through a time of being by myself, but, but God is good. And uh, you know what? God knows what he's doing. I don't question him. And uh, it's been a great life. We were married 46 years. Um, I, I've been able to, to see so many things I'm not done. There's some great things that are going on. In fact, right now, we're forming a new region. Uh, we're separating the Europe and the Middle East. We're going to be taking that. My board meeting, our board meeting is going to be uh, June the 22nd. Uh, I brought a committee in to do that. And there's just some exciting things happening. We are now preaching in 230 nations and territories. And I thank God for what God's doing. Well, that's a little bit of my testimony. And you might have some questions or whatever. For Brother Beardsley, I'll stop right there on that. All right. Desi, why don't you rejoin us here? And uh, Brother Howell, this has been been fascinating. Um, and I, uh, I realized that for me, it's probably a little even more fascinating because I've known you in one capacity. I knew, as I told you before the broadcast, there was a backstory there. And I am so thankful and grateful that you were willing to tell us some of that backstory. Well, and, let me tell, let me say one thing. The yes, real sir. backstory is this, and I showed it to you. I'm in my office. The real thing, this is my maternal grandmother. She was born in the 1800s. She died in 1938. When my mother died, I found this Bible. This is a Bible that my grandmother won in the first Pentecostal church in a Sunday school contest in 1936. I found out that this grandmother, my mother was not saved until the end of her life, but this grandmother was baptized in Jesus' name, and I believe it's her prayers that brought me to where I am today. Never knew her. She didn't know me. But I believe when she was saved, the Trinitarians came to her and said, the reason you're dying is because you accepted that oneness doctrine. She said, well, that may be the way it is, but I'll never let go of it. And she stayed steadfast. I believe awesome. don't give up on your family. Pray for them anyway. Amen. 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 Well, folks, it's questions time. So as you uh, post those questions, as you, uh, give some things. I want one more thing that I promised Desi, which is we have a number of Latinos within our church. And so I need you to greet them in Spanish. They will shoot me. I promised them that I would get you to talk to them. I told them you were uh, like a machine gun when you get going. Have you had coffee today? I did. In fact, I never drink coffee in the afternoon, but I just drank some community coffee and put a shot of espresso in it. So oh, that's I'm so hyper. There you go. And, and so I know it. So greet them in Spanish. All of us that don't speak Spanish won't understand right. it, but greet them in Spanish. Hermanos, que el Señor les bendiga. A los que pueden hablar el idioma de los ángeles, es un privilegio saludarles. Que el Señor les bendiga. Por supuesto, mi cuna es realmente Latinoamérica. Por los 19 años que yo he servido, realmente lo que yo uso en mi liderazgo son las cosas que aprendí en Latinoamérica, especialmente en El Salvador. 
y gracias a Dios, me imagino, a algunos de ustedes les gustan pupusas, y gracias a Dios, lamentablemente aquí donde vivo no hay pupusas, pero gracias a Dios hay muchos hispanos, y yo siempre voy a la tienda mexicana para comprar los plátanos y queso fresco y crema salvadoreña, que el Señor les bendiga, aleluya, es un placer saludarles en el nombre del Señor. Amén. All right, Desi, you, you're Puerto Rican. Did you get all that? I did not. I did not. I was raised here speaking English. That's another story for another time. That's a shame. <laughs> and see, I just threw him under the bus too, Brother Howe. He knew it was coming. I was sitting there looking at the screen, grinning at him, and he's like, oh, he's going to come for me. I know he is. There we go. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. As you know, part of my reason was obviously our, our beautiful people that do speak Spanish, and they, they work to speak English with us, and we appreciate their faithfulness. Of course, as you know, I've had all five of my kids at various levels of Spanish. Of course, Vincent has done some missions trips. Caleb got back from Paraguay. So uh, thank you for sharing. Spanish is close to us. And uh, I believe one of the greatest revivals in North America is going to be in the Spanish speaking population. So and, uh, this is not a question, but just if I can break in right here, I'll let you know, Brother Howell, that if you ever end up in our area, we have multiple. I'm monitoring the chat. So I'll feed you questions. And these are not questions, but we've already had multiple people respond of our Latino community, letting you know that if you are in our area, they would happily feed you. Oh, that's great. I would love to. You didn't understand what I said, but I was talking about pupusas, which is a Salvadorian food. And uh, I was talking also about going to the Mexican stores here. I go all the time to get what we call queso fresco, which is fresh cheese yeah. that uh, you gringos don't know anything about. That's correct. That's oh, right. Yeah. I did pick up papusa. I did pick that up. There uh, we but go. the rest was the rest was over my head. I studied it in high school. All of our Latino brothers and sisters, they keep telling me I need to learn it. And I smile and I say that era is over. I'm sorry. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> I am coming to your area in about three weeks. I'm going to be doing the New Jersey, Central New Jersey District Conference. So anyway, awesome. I'll, be, I'll be there. Awesome. All right, Desi, do we have, do we have some questions for Brother Howell uh, that have started to come in? Yes, we have two questions that have come in so far, and, and you feel free to answer them how you will. The first question that came in is, would you be willing to share with us a little bit about what it was like living in El Salvador? You mentioned the fact that there was a, you know, a, a war, you were there during a wartime, but yeah. outside of that, as, as a missionary there, you said you lived there for 20 years. I know, quick little side plug. Um, I went to school with his baby, as he put it. So Amy is a year younger than me. She was a year behind me at CLC, Christian Life College. And when my wife and I got married, we had Desi, our oldest, shortly after that. And he doesn't, he's listening tonight. He's now 16, Brother Howell. Oh, he doesn't my. remember this. But when Desi was a baby, his babysitter was Amy. Oh, my. Oh. I remember. I remember. Yeah, so, that was my baby. Yeah, so, Desi, before you ask the other question. Do you want to ask the million dollar question or me? The headlamp. The headlamp. The headlamp. Yeah. Do you want to ask it? You're the one that's told me about it. I got to know. Sometime tonight, I got to know. You're not remembering. All right. I get to ask we'll the question. We'll do that later. Did you buy a headlamp so you could cut the grass? Oh, why at are you night? bringing this up? That's not fair to the man. Now I know. I didn't buy it. My kids bought it for me because I used to mow the grass. I always hired the grass mowed, but I had to redo it myself because I'm so persnickety. And I would be out and my kids laughed at me because I would be doing it after dark. So they bought me a lamp to put on my hat so I could see to mow the grass at night. <laughs> and this is one of the stories your kid, your, your baby shared with me at one point laughing about something yeah. silly your dad did. Why would you bring that up in public? Steven. Oh, it's an awesome oh, question. Okay. Steven, not you. <laughs> no, that's a that's an awesome question to ask. Because you, 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 you gotta get real on these broadcasts, Desi. Come on now. Brother he wants Howell you to look already, very human, Brother Howell. Brother Howell already knows who he was coming on with. No, there was exactly. no surprise about coming on with Stephen Beardsley. So that it, well, let's let's move to the question. Okay. <laughs> so El Salvador, share us a little bit yeah. about raising and and the reason I mentioned daughter is I know from being in college with her and her sharing stories, your yeah. kids, in essence, grew up in yeah. El Salvador. Well, you know, I mean, there's no doubt that living there was experience just, you know, the third, uh, and, uh, uh, 
you know, we used to call them third world countries. We don't do that anymore. But El Salvador was a backward country. Of course, when I arrived there, there had been a coup that had taken place. And uh, I remember that when I when I arrived in El Salvador, you couldn't many the grocery stores were almost empty. You couldn't get new vehicles. Uh, there was an embargo. Uh, there was a war going on that went on for 12 years. But besides that, it became very, very interesting. Uh, one of the things that I experienced with my family as well was facing sicknesses. Uh, my wife became sick when we first got there and she had hepatitis, which was in the infectious oh hepatitis. She had malaria and she had typhoid and she had all three of those at the same time. That's we had to bring her back to Jackson but God miraculously healed her because the doctor told her, you'll have to be in the hospital at least three months. But we prayed for her. They did the exams. And then when they did that, they came back and said, we don't know what's happened, but there's no sign of any of those diseases. And for 20 years, God healed my wife's eyes and she never had to wear glasses. She wore glasses at that point. But when God healed her of those three sicknesses for 20 years, she didn't have to wear glasses. But anyway, living in El Salvador for her, for us, it was very different. Uh, we had to be very careful about what we did. We could not be out after night. There were uh, there were uh, boycotts where we could not drive on the roads or they would machine gun your cars. My kids could not play out on the street. Uh, they had lived a very controlled life. It wasn't easy. There was a lot of gunfights going on. And I would, when my kids were growing up in the car, I would do what would be called a gun drill, where I would make them get into the floorboard of the car in case there was shooting. Sometimes it was just a drill, but there were other times it really happened. Uh, you know, my kids, I'm sure there were things. In fact, my oldest daughter, she has post-traumatic stress syndrome that is a, re is a result of that. She's 42, but she still struggles with that. And I don't think she would mind. I'd want you to pray for her. She's had some real serious nerve problems because of that. And uh, the devil attacked me about Leah. that and said that I had ruined Leah. my kid's childhood because I raised them in El Salvador. But I thank God that my kids are serving the Lord and uh, I give God praise for that. Um, you know, as far as life is concerned, my wife, she had to learn how to do everything where she was a good cook. She had to make everything from scratch. You couldn't get mayonnaise. She had to make that. Uh, she had to, everything was from scratch, what we call from scratch. So life there was very, very interesting. Uh, we loved it though. I mean, my wife loved it. She became very, uh, at the language, she could probably street, uh, speak the street Spanish better than I could. Now I did the public speaking, but I passed her to church we baptized 5,000 people in that church. My kids were very involved in the church, etc. I hope that answers the question. Sure. But anyway. Sure. Thank you for being willing to share some of that. Yeah. Let me give you another question. Probably a question you get asked often, but I'd love for you to share it with our congregation. What advice would you give to those who are feeling a call to missions? I would say, first of all, expose yourself to everything you can. You know, right now, especially in the area you live in, there are people from all over the world. You Absolutely. do not have to wait to go to another country to reach people. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> to reach people of other countries. In fact, there are nations right now, uh, according to the Na uh, Population Reference Bureau, there are 210 countries in the world. We have churches in 195. So that means that there are 15 places where we do not have churches. And we're finishing our statistical report right now. It may be even less than that. But really, I believe that probably right where those, the person that wants to get involved in missions, there's probably people from some, one of those 15 nations that live in your area that by reaching them there, you could possibly reach that. But as far as getting involved in missions, I would say learn another language become involved with other people of other cultures. Don't stick with one culture. That's what I would do if, if people want to be exposed. And when you get a chance, take a missions trip, go visit the missions field. That's what you need to do. Excellent advice. Thank you. This is a Beardsley question, not from Stephen, but from one of his offspring. So okay. it sounds like Stephen. Did you want to be a missionary or were you resistant to it at first? Uh, not when God called me. Now, when I was in Bible school, 
You know, I always struggle with being a preacher because when I was in Bible school, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I didn't know, you know, I just didn't know what I was going to do. And so I thought, am I going to be an evangelist? I'm going to be a pastor. But really being a missionary was not on that list at all. Hmm. I was exposed to missions on the trip that I took with the Bible college. I don't know if I clarified that. That's when God called me. No, after that call, I never fought it. Now, I had many people. I struggle with taking my kids to a war-torn country. I worried about them, but I never fought it. I did I did struggle with some fear sometimes in the beginning, but I remember one night there was a gunfight going on, and I was in a cold sweat. I fell out of the bed on my knees, and I said, God, if you've called me here, you're going to have to take this fear away, and God took it away. Now, that's not saying there were not moments of fear, because during the war, when a gunfight was going on, when I saw somebody killed, excuse me, or when I had to do funerals, and and when I had to get on the floor, and when the missile came through the wall of our house, and all that stuff, you know, there was fear, but not a consuming fear. So, no, I never struggled against the, against the missionary call. Never did an amazing story. Thank you for sharing it. Another question from a member of our congregation. They asked, when you felt that your calling was to a place as at such a horrible time that El Salvador was facing, what was your first thoughts about it? And how did you kind of tie to the question you just answered? How did you overcome any reservations you may have had about going to El Salvador, knowing the kind of danger that your family would be facing? You know, I didn't hear a voice. I just felt an impression and I felt a burden. I'll never forget when I got back off of that missions trip, I sat on the on the platform because I, I was on the pastoral staff. I wasn't full time, but I was on staff directing service and all. I would sit there and weep and cry when I thought about the Salvadorian people. And so I had a love for them and I wanted to be with them. Um, and so, uh, you know, I... I, I put myself into it completely. Uh, it refreshed my mind again on the question. I got sidetracked. It's all right. When you realized that, that God had called you and you were going to El Salvador, how, how did you deal with some of, we would at least were imagining the difficulty of having to reconcile putting your family and taking them okay. to such a difficult yeah. and dangerous place? You know, I, I had a rough time because I had friends that were in the college at Jackson. I taught it full time in the Bible college in Jackson. And my mother, my family, my family were not in the church at that time. And I remember my mother saying, why can't you stay here? My sister, why can't you stay here? There's places here that need churches. Why don't you stay here? Why are you taking your kids? My mother said, why are you taking my grandkids to go live over there? During all of that, I did have a mother-in-law, however, that was one of the greatest ladies that I've ever known. She was a true mother to me. Now, I love my mother, but mm-hmm. I didn't have a mother that was in the church. And she always backed us. And I, I really feel that what helped me to cope with that was Brother Kraft, our pastor, and also my mother-in-law, who backed us hands down. And I know she had to be worried about her grandkids, you know, because these were her first grandchildren. That's her grandbabies going, too. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But she always came to visit us. Uh, I remember when my daughter was uh, she was bit by a dog right when we first got there and she was going to have to have rabies shots. My mother-in-law worked for a law firm in Jackson, one of the largest law firms. She was able to get a special serum that was only five shots instead of the 14. And I mean, she did all those kind of things for us. But I would say the way I coped with it, number one, I was focused on it. Number two, I had to overcome the fear because you can't live in fear. It's like right now with this COVID, I'm careful, but I don't live in fear. You know, I don't, I mean, I wear a mask. Uh, I'm, I'm as careful as I can be, but I'm not going to live with fear. I've just never done that. And uh, I, God just helped me overcome it, but also my pastor and my mother-in-law and my wife. I mean, my Lord, my wife was, this, I mean, she would take my Jeep, my old Jeep and drive out in the war-torn area with the women. Uh, she loved it there. She loved it. She really was more happy there than she was here, but that's wow. how, that's how it answered. So you made a passing comment, and I've had 
One, two, three, four. Multiple people who went, wait, 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 go back, rewind the tape. Did you say missile through the wall? Did we hear that correctly? Yes. There was an offensive of 1989. Uh, there was, it was when uh, the, uh, there was an offensive where the guerrillas were making a final thrust to take the country. And in the area that we lived in, there was a fight going on between the military and the guerrillas. Well, it was all over the city first. We had 400 refugees in our church. And so the old, old women and the mothers with new babies we brought to our home because we felt like we lived in a safer area. Well, that morning at four o'clock in the morning, I woke up and I could hear bullets going through the air. I could hear the terrorists screaming at the military. We did not have a wall in front of our house and they were fighting literally right outside of the door of our house. We had just gotten back from deputation. Our car was sitting in the driveway with a Mississippi license plate on it. And of course they could see that. Uh, but I remember going upstairs and looking out a window and I saw the jet fighters, the military coming down and they were shooting into the area that we were against the terrorists. I remember going out and looking out the door and when I did, I saw the, uh, the M16s and I saw them pointing at me and I had to get back in. And so about 10 till eight that morning, I got everybody in the living room. And when I did, I called Amy in from her bedroom. And when I did, she was sitting in a corner. And when I called her in just a few minutes after that, bullets began to come through the ceiling and one came into the corner exactly where she was sitting. If I hadn't called them into prayer, well, that was part of the roof that was wood. So I took them into the kitchen, the girls, my son was at the Showalter's house in another part of the area. And I put them up under the cabinets. And when I did, there was a missile that came through the wall. And when it came through, it came through the concrete and exploded. And when it did, it broke the windows of the kitchen. And my girls, both of them, Amy and Leah, cried out, Daddy, are we going to die? And I'll never forget that. I didn't know, but I said, girls, everything's going to be all right. And when the shrapnel from that missile that came through the wall, there were two butane bottles of gas, the propane gas, there were two of them. The shrapnel went everywhere. And I've got a picture of it around it, but not one piece of that shrapnel hit those propane bottles of gas because if it would have it would have blown the house up but that's the way God protected us so that's that's what happened we got out of that with a little white flag we put ketchup on one of the girls uh, we had some people in the house to make it look like they were wounded and we asked them to hold fires till we could get out of the house and that's how we got out with a little white flag so and they agreed to let you pass pardon and they agreed to let you pass they did. They said they would hold their fire, the military would, against the terrorists until we got out. And they did let us. But then I lost my girls in that. Oh, there's all kinds of stories about that. My girls were lost. I didn't know where they were, but they were with some of the saints. We had curfew. Oh, my. So many things happened. I guess I need to write a book about it. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking that might be a good idea. So many things. When the terrorists came to the convention looking for us with guns, there were 15,000 people and they could not see us. It's just so many miracles. My car flying over the rocks. You've, you all have heard that one, I think. Have well, you ever heard that, you just brought that up. We've heard that, but our congregation has not. Would you share that story? Okay. One night, my wife and I were driving. There was a blockade and I knew that they would ambush us and I knew what they would do. I was out in the mountains, going up the side of the mountain. There was no way my little Toyota van could get over those rocks. We called out upon the name of the Lord and the angels lifted our car up. We flew over the rocks and they set us down and we kept on trucking. Now that's the abbreviated version of it, but it was unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. You know what? Toyota needs to use that to sell Toyotas. <laughs> is El Salvador the place that I've heard the story of some kind of civil war where there was some, where there was people, someone got shot and it literally, it went through the cloth and yet did not strike the person. Have you no. heard that? Uh, I know that's Haiti. Uh, brother, brother, Haiti. Brian, brother Brian, uh, Ron Brian has the t-shirt. And uh, no, that happened in Haiti. That happened in Haiti. 
So the bullets went through the shirt, but somehow did not go through the person. Did not, did not touch the man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's just astounding. Absolutely. Would you mind just a quick side note? One of the one of our people listening still has family in El Salvador, and she yeah. wanted to know where where were you in El Salvador? I lived in San Salvador, the capital. When we first went, we lived in a colonia called Miramonte, which is right behind the Intercontinental Hotel. Uh, it's a middle class area. But when we moved there, what happened is that many all missionaries left, wealthy people left, so we were living in a house that was small. I mean, it wasn't bad. It was a nice house. But up in an area called Escalon, if the lady knows, Escalon was where the big houses were. We got a house up there for this exact same price that we were renting in the other place. So we lived in Escalon um, for the most of the time that we were there. Thank you in for the capital, sharing. In the capital city. Thank you for sharing. Another question for you. It said, many people in our church love giving to missions, which is very much, I know you know our church. That's very much a heartbeat of our church. So we love to give to missions, and we do it regularly and consistently as part of their ministry. Did the knowledge that there were those financially supporting you, no matter what, help you and other missionaries in difficult places as you ministered? What did, oh explain to us on the reverse end. We know about giving. What does it feel like, or how is it received as the missionary receiving the financial support from these people who will never meet you, never know you. You know, the thing is this, I mean, our missionaries even still yet do not get exorbitant salaries. They live okay. But the idea that they don't have to worry about that, because in fact, this is our 75th year, the anniversary of our organization. And back in the beginning, I remember Brother Glenn Smith, who was my regional director. I mean, even in my time, when they were first appointed as missionaries, if there was money, they got it. If there was no money, they didn't get it. And missionaries lived on the field during that time, not knowing if they were going to have money or not. And so they were, had to worry about that. Many of them had to start businesses in order to be able to make it. Brother uh, Brother Glenn Smith, who was in the Caribbean, he he. he started an export wood business and all he had to to be able to make it but now we don't have to do that thank god we can supply the need it's for example right now what it does to you our missionaries right now deputation stopped we stopped deputation we were able to pay per diems to our missionaries because of the faithful giving of those of you that are giving and i thank god that we have worked hard there's not one missionary that is in an account that's a deficit account or below zero. Everybody has money and enough for us to take care of them during this time. And for us, it gives us time to be able to dedicate our, if there's anything to worry about, we don't have to worry about money. I mean, we don't have a lot, but we're taken care of. It's but enough. it lets us dedicate our time to teaching and preaching and winning the lost and discipling people. I would say that's what it did for me. You know, even when my daughter, Amy, my daughter, Amy was born with a birth defect and she had to have surgeries right after her birth. I thank God that because of the giving of our faithful supporters, we had good insurance. We were able to take care of Amy's situation or anything like that. So that's what it did for me. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. And, and to our Means church so family. Means so and to our church family. This is part of that kingdom work that we talk about. And tonight you're getting to interact with the global missions director. And there are many of these missionaries that we support that you don't get to meet. But every week, as you contribute whatever you're able to, every month as you do this, you continue to support missions work around the world. So that way these people can focus on that kingdom work and they don't have to worry that they're going to have enough to feed their family or they're going to have insurance to make sure if their children, in your case, your daughter has to face a surgery, other things like that. All of this contributes to that. So it's extremely vital and church families are very blessed. Yeah. And the giving also allows us to do projects like build Bible schools, build churches. I mean, it's just, oh my, it's so rewarding. So rewarding. Thanks to every one of you. You'll never know what it means to all of us in Global Missions, your faithful giving. Thank you. Thank you. Desi, let me add also, uh, returning to Sister Howell, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to Brother Howell, but, you know, Newark in, in recent years, uh, Brother Howell knows this as you do as well, that Regina and I have been privileged to be able to take our teaching skills and our education to the field, particularly Africa. And one of the things that I found so um, 
your wife may not have felt called to missions, but boy, she sure took on the mantle of missions. There was never a post. There was never a report that Regina or I would make when we were on the field that eventually I did not see Diane Howell either commenting or giving me a thumbs up. It was like, you, you were clueless. I don't know if you knew I was doing anything, but your wife, but I knew your what you wife, were doing, but I didn't stay on social media. <laughs> but your wife was on it like every single time. And sometimes she'd be one of the first people to be tapping on that and paying attention. And I always read that as yeah. that her heart was tuned in to all of the mission fields, all of the work that was being done. She was an amazing lady. And that always encouraged my wife and I, I can tell you, it very much encouraged us that she was paying attention to what little part we were contributing to the overall, the overall effort. Let me just say outside of God, I I attribute to my wife where I am today. I wouldn't be here if it hadn't been for her. God, number one, but second, my wife, she's the greatest thing that ever happened to me outside of God. And uh, I thank the Lord for her. And I'm still living off of that and will the rest of my life. Absolutely. Desi, do we have any other closing questions or did we exhaust the questions? We have one left that we, um, I just, I don't know if it's fair to you. We've had multiple people because you brought it up and they, they want to know as we're at the top of the hour, would you be willing to sing in closing? And you are allowed to decline, sir. Me? Sing? <laughs> well, what do this they want what you to get sing? for bringing this up in an informal broadcast that you like to sing. Okay. Let me see. Oh, I can't. My voice is gone now, though, because of my preaching. I, my voice is gone. You, go. you know, I mean, I sing, but it's not uh, it's not quality because I've ruined you, my voice preaching. You stripped I, it out preaching all those fast paced. Yeah, I, I scream too much. I scream too much. <laughs> but I did. There is some recordings when I was in Jackson. There's some recordings of me singing. So <laughs> we'll have to see if somebody can go find those. I wonder if they've been archived somewhere on YouTube. There's or... one called he was more than just a man. He was more than just a man. I so Nick, that if you're watching Marie. tonight, he's kind of our internet sleuth. Nick, if you're watching tonight, go see if you can find it. Do you remember the year? Oh, no. No, it would have been probably, it had to be in the 70s, you know, probably like around 76, 77, around in there. Nick, somewhere 1976, 1977. Yeah. He was go more than Go find it in the archives. Yeah. Yep. Go find he was it more archives. than just a man. <laughs> awesome. Anyway. Awesome. Well, Brother Hal, let me say thank you so much for being willing to be with us tonight. I know that you are an extremely busy man, and uh, you um, you do so much for our organization and for the gospel. It's an honor to uh, consider you one of my bosses as Global Missions um, District Global Missions Director. It's, it's a joy to work with you. Of course, Brian is my immediate boss, so uh, yes. I get more trouble out of him than I do out of you, but it's always a privilege to see you at conference and to interact and and uh, we're just very privileged to have had you with us. And um, I, I'll close with this. Newark has heard this. You probably have not. My father is quite a colorful man, quite a powerful man, you know, a pioneer, uh, all of those things. And you've known my dad as well for years. And uh, when, I, when I felt called of God, as clearly as you talk about El Salvador, that's how clearly I felt that I was called to pastor Newark. My dad didn't really want it. He knew that others would detract from it, say I had just gotten things handed to me, things like that. But the call of God was clear. And uh, and so when I finally stepped into the role as, as senior pastor, I, I felt quite intimidated. I, I very much understood what Solomon felt as he succeeded David and, and, and had that prayer time with God and said, God, you know, how do I lead this people? And uh, the Lord spoke to me in that moment. And he said, you think, and he named a number of my father's gifts. He said, you think that this is how he did what he did. He said, but son, actually, the way that Newark has been built is your father from almost immediately. It was within the first, I believe, month. It was definitely within the first three months. We had a missionary service and took on a PIM, $15. And he said, what you don't understand is it's not his ability to build a building. It's not his financial management. It's not, no, your father built this church by putting missions front and center. 
He said, if you will keep giving to missions, everything will be okay. And so that's the privilege of being able to partner with men and women like you and your wife and all of the other great missionaries is that our giving yes is enabling you, but it's also coming back around and enabling us to do what God has called us to do. And what an amazing privilege to labor in the kingdom together. I'm blessed. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. All right, everybody, as we say, don't forget newarkupc.info. If you're not in a small group now, Desi, I don't know what we're going to say, but we'll say it again. It's time to join one. You're missing out. We've got a ways to go before we're back in person services. Go to our church website and you'll see an online small group card and you'll also see online small groups, how to join them. Just click on the card, fill out the information. We'll get you connected. Absolutely. And partner with us in giving, partner with us in prayers. And uh, we're looking forward to a great week. Pentecost Sunday is coming up. So all of this week, we'll be celebrating Pentecost. You don't want to miss the broadcast. It's going to be a great time. In fact, Brother Howell's going to be with us on Sunday. He's already recorded part of that service with us. So thank you again for that, Brother Howell. He's going to be addressing you again in the part of the pre-recorded service. And so until then, we'll see you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock. And until then, as we say at the end of every broadcast, good night, everybody. Have a good night. Thank you for joining us.